Hi, you're listening to Stefan Levera Podcast, a show about Bitcoin and Austrian economics. Today, we're talking about this idea of whether Bitcoin can be both hard money and dark money, and whether it should be or must be both of these things. Now, joining me on the show today to talk about this is my friend Giacomo Zucco. And so we talk about various concepts related to this. We talk about the community of businesses. Is there a risk of regulatory capture? We also discuss the use of whether people should consider using altcoins or atomic swapping or lightning or other means of achieving privacy. And we also talk about some of these aspects around compliance bros and compliance as opposed to the free and open gray market world of Bitcoin, as well as why number go up is actually still important. This show is brought to you by Swan Bitcoin. I'm working at Swan and with Swan, there's also a service called Swan Private. Now, we launched Swan Private because we talked to so many people that had issues with the major exchanges. They were getting their accounts locked or customer service couldn't help them. Some people couldn't onboard their accounts, especially if they had an entity account. And many just wanted to talk to an actual human being who could answer their Bitcoin questions. With Swan Private, you are receiving a one-on-one Bitcoin advisory service. This is designed for high net worth investors or for entities. And this team is actually here to support you in your Bitcoin journey, whether that's expert guidance on choosing the right custody model or giving you exclusive access to a Swan Private webinar and monthly research report. These are some of the benefits that you can get by joining up with Swan Private. So if you're interested to buy Bitcoin with some guidance along the way, go to swanprivate.com. And if you need some fiat liquidity and you need to use a collateralized loan, Lend at HODL HODL is a peer-to-peer Bitcoin-backed lending platform. So you can lend or borrow stable coins globally and anonymously. Now, the cool part is you can sign up really quickly and you can borrow stable coins without any verification. You deal directly with other people and you select the offer based on the term length and the interest rate that has been offered by the counterparty. Now, on the other hand, if you have stable coins and you want to earn extra, well, this is one way to look at this. So you are essentially issuing out an over-collateralized loan and you get the full interest paid out at the end. Now, with Lend at, Lend at HODL HODL, you are lending and borrowing stable coins on your terms at your desired interest rates. So go and check it out. The website is lend.hodlhodl.com. Are you interested in getting started with Bitcoin mining? Compass Mining can help you. They are the world's first and largest online marketplace for Bitcoin mining, hardware, hosting, and ASIC reselling. Compass is adding over 280 megawatts worth of hosting capacity this year alone. They can help you get easily started. If you're in the US, you can order a mining machine to your home and mine from home, or you can use a hosted service where they are sending your machine to a vetted facility and that can be done all around the world and there are various facilities that you can select from so you can go and select the mining machine they've also got some that are new and some that are secondhand so obviously there's a trade-off there and sometimes those secondhand ones will be able to come online faster so there's also lots of material there on the website if you need to learn about bitcoin mining they've got audio material and a newsletter so you can go and sign up that website is compassmining.io and now onto the show with Giacomo. Giacomo, welcome back to the show. Thank you for having me back. It's a pleasure. It's a long time. Yeah, it's been a while since you were on my show, actually. But uh, I always uh, love seeing your perspective on Bitcoin Twitter and the articles you write and the talks you do. And uh, 
You did a great one recently at Unconfiscatable, which we might get into some of that also, because I think it's a very topical moment for many of us in the Bitcoin world where we're having this discussion about Bitcoin as a tool for privacy, but also this you know, as a tool for savings and a store of value and just being a better money. And I think this is something you you have spoken about, this idea of Bitcoin being both hard money and dark money. And I guess that's probably a good spot to start. So maybe if you just want to frame this for listeners, how would you define hard money and dark money? Why are both of those important? So hard money is not a definition that uh, that, that stem from from me. It's, it's uh, pretty standard at this point. is is Bitcoin standard in a way because it was popularized by Sefedian among others. So hard money is basically the characteristic of uh, supply inelasticity when you have uh, more people uh, demanding some kind of very saleable good as as a form of money for monetary function the supply production will resist, will be inelastic uh, with respect to the demand. That's very important for money because if you use uh, as money any other thing, you incur into this uh, money trap. Basically, uh, you you give uh, you have more demand for this uh, good as money, for monetary functions. So now you have more demand. So now there is more incentive for the producers to basically produce more. And now you will have a collapse of the price and it's not working as money anymore. So it's important to have this kind of... Uh, uh, supply inelasticity. Uh, it's, it has been uh, qualified better as uh, stock to flow ratio, which is separated from the stock to flow price prediction model. It's, uh, I'm a little bit, I mean, at, at this point, it's very important to separate the things. Uh, price prediction is a very difficult endeavor, while uh, the analysis of, of stock to flow ratio as a fundamental measure of inelasticity of the supply and scarcity, basically, it's very important. So hard money is very well qualified. It's a, it's a definition that overlaps a little bit with the previously famous definition of sound money, um, but, but, but there are a lot of, uh, of better, I think it's more clear definition of what makes scarcity so important for the monetary function of Bitcoin or of everything else. Dark money, I will admit that's probably something that I'm trying to push more myself is not very standard at this point uh, within Bitcoin or outside Bitcoin. And uh, I started to uh, push it in my uh, Discovering Bitcoin series in uh, Bitcoin magazine. And I think it, it fits very well because it's, it's a similar sounding, like it's very short definition. It's not like fungibility or deniability. It's like dark, it's very compact. And it, it also uh, basically makes you think to darknet markets, which are the clear, not the only case of application, but the most uh, evident, uh, clear, self-evident case of application of some form of money that cannot be spied, censored uh, easily, uh, and that, that's basically free to use as you please without uh, uh, consequences. And, but there's also a lot of other, like if, if, you, if you think about that, the, the idea of dark is used also outside the specific idea of secrecy. Like uh, if you think about the intellectual dark net or intellectual dark web, uh, where journalists are classifying people like uh, uh, Peterson or, or, or Wolfram in science, it's basically everybody who is not in the official whitelist. So there is a white list of people, of people and stuff and ideas that you are allowed to follow. And then there is the dark side of it, which is basically everything which is below the white list, everything which is not which, without the light of the official sanction on it. So everything which is below that. And also there is like 
the the idea of going dark. So when you when people need cash, physical cash, or in this case, digital cash, they usually need cash because they want to go dark. So they want to be able to spend without being pursued or 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 harassed or confiscated or punished or or everything else. So there is this level of. Uh, of uh, uh, there is a lot. I think dark is a very good. I mean, for somebody it could be scary. The, the the whole idea of calling this stuff dark net is to make that scary. But at a certain point, just like maximalism, we could just take the 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 negative connotation of the word and just ignore it and reappropriate the word in general. So, so explaining hard money is very simple. It's scarcity. It's a supply and elasticity. Explaining darkness is a little bit more complex. I will start probably from the definition of censorship resistant. We say that Bitcoin must be censorship resistant. But what is censorship? Basically, you can resist censorship in two ways, basically. Either you can physically outpower the attacker. So somebody wants to censor you, wants to prevent you from spending your property as you please. And in order to, to resist the censorship, you just outpower the attacker physically. So uh, I come to you, no, Stefan, you cannot spend that. And you are just bigger than me and you just punch me and, and it's over. You are censorship resistant. But the other kind of censorship resistant, which is more pertinent to Bitcoin, is admitting a physical inferiority, like I'm the US government. Uh, I come to you, you cannot spend it. You cannot punch me, not easily. I mean, if you, if you are the Taliban, maybe you can try to fight for 40 years, but that, but it's not trivial as a consequence. So you, you, you have to resist, but you cannot resist physically. So the, if you cannot use the physical force asymmetry, then you use the information asymmetry in order to beat me, uh, which is uh, basically in Bitcoin, it's, uh, it's at two levels. The first uh, uh, information asymmetry is at the level of the user, which is basically, first of all, the key, the private key secrecy. Since uh, I don't know your keys, I cannot prevent you from spending because I cannot spend those money away from your from your wallet. So I cannot stop you from spending because you know the key and I don't. So this is the first level of darkness of secrecy. The second level is if if I don't even know that you do have that money because I cannot easily track you. It's even harder to try to steal your money or to censor your money or to confiscate it or to freeze it because I don't know how much you have and where you have it. So first, the private key, and second, the fact that you have any money at all. But uh, this kind of darkness is not just at the level of the user, but also at the level of, let's, let's call it system administrator. Like, for example, in the case of eGold, even if users were pretty anonymous in a way, the system administrator was not anonymous, was not dark, was very clear because it was just two guys and they just had to arrest them and to shut down their server and they knew where the server was and where the guys were they just put some electronic ankle they just had to jail them basically in bitcoin you have this kind of darkness because first of all you don't know who satoshi nakamoto the creator of the system is the anonymity of satoshi is very important because it's not an attack vector while other uh, cryptocurrency creators or system creators they may be an attack vector to the system in general. And second, even if you knew who Satoshi is, it's not important anymore because at this point, uh, everybody is replaceable, everybody is disposable. If you shut down a miner, another miner can just plug the ASIC in. If you shut down an exchange, another will come. So you have made the system, uh, you have made the system uh, censorship resistant because you don't know who do you have to hit in order to, to, to take the system down. So this idea of darkness, I think it's it's a better characterization of censorship resistant. We, we are not resistant 
to censorship because we, we can outpower the attacker, but because we know things that the attacker doesn't know. Yeah, good explanation there. So at a very superficial high level, you could think of dark money just being private money, right? That's maybe a very simple way to put it. But as you say, it there are levels to this because if you are strong enough physically, you could just say, I know you know I have this money, but I'm stronger than you, so I'm just going to do it anyway. Exactly. Right? Or as an example, you might say, okay, look, instead of all the gold of the world or a very high percentage of the gold of the world being stored in one vault in Fort Knox, instead of that, it's because it's so distributed all around the world or all amongst the country or in different places amongst different people for this large entity to go around and seize it. It's just physically just very difficult, it's similar to your US and uh, Taliban example, right? Because they're just all spread out and same kind of guerrilla warfare, Vietnam sort of idea. Which is also, sorry to interrupt you, it's also an, inf- an information problem. If you want to stop Taliban, if you want to conquer Afghanistan and go home by home, your problem is also an information problem. You don't know which one is a resistant, which one is just a civilian. It's asymmetric because you don't know. The enemy could be everywhere. So it's still a problem of information and secrecy in a way. Right, right. As, as you say, yeah, correct. And so then I think the challenge for Bitcoin as an open source project to overall survive and go this way is this idea that it has to be both. Is there a fundamental trade-off between being one or being the other? And I think that's probably the interesting question. So what's your view on that? Is there a fundamental trade-off or is it not the case? And actually for Bitcoin to survive, both aspects, both ideas must be preserved. So it's both, meaning that uh, there there are trade-offs for example, the, the main trade-off is that when you, we will discuss that a little bit more in, when we go into details, but when you optimize technology for hardness, for example, uh, auditability of the supply, you, that there are smart ways to also have a good privacy and vice versa and the other way around. But usually you do have to choose uh, some optimization. There are a a little bit in trade-off. A typical example is a typical problem in cryptography of uh, perfectly binding versus perfectly blinding. When you have this problem of obfuscating things, you have to choose if you want to make these things easier to retrieve in case of confusion of bugs or stuff, or easy to hide. And you do have to choose. But my point would be that... uh, at a more general level, we have to have both because uh, these are actually self-reinforcing characteristics. In particular, money cannot be really dark if it's also not hard. And this is, we will discuss that, but this is the point that I think many privacy coin pr- uh, proponents don't understand. If you don't have hard money, uh, people will not use, if you don't have the most saleable good, uh, which also depends on its hardness, at least in the context of your use case, like your dark net markets or, or stuff, if, if your money is not the more hard, it will never be the more liquid. And if it's not the more liquid, so the, the more used, then your anonymity set will decrease. So the, the problem is that it's not just about the technology you use. It's also about how many people are using the same technology. If you have the perfect, uh, the perfect anonymity, if you have a, a suit covering your face feature completely, but you are the only guy using that suit among a room of naked people, it's very easy to spot you because you are the only one using it. I cannot see your face, but, uh, but Stephen is the only one missing among these naked people. So I know it's him under the suit. So the, the problem is liquidity and, and unonset. 
and the unknown set depends on liquidity. And it's, it's not easy to, to solve this and to work around just saying, okay, let's use Bitcoin as a very liquid store of value and let's use something else as a dark medium of exchange. Because every time you have to get out of your store of value and enter in the medium of exchange, that will be a liquidity uh, bottleneck and that will also be an unknown set bottleneck. And the other way around, when your merchant gets paid, it will have to exit the, the medium of exchange into the store of value long term and there will be a anonymity and anonymity set bottleneck as well. Also, the other thing why uh, not hard money is, is usually not very good at being dark is also the, the, the thing about hodling versus spending. If you hodl, it's pretty easy to stay dark because you're not moving anything. You're ju- you are not just uh, leaking any metadata about spending. You are just keeping your private keys secretly for 20 years. Very hard to spot you. If you have to spend continuously, so if your money is not hard, so you have to keep spending like, like an inflated uh, Venezuelan uh, government shit coins, then you need to move around. You, to, you need to leak a lot of metadata. You li- will leave traces on-chain or off-chain at network level, at chain level. So hodling is good for privacy while keeping spending is bad for privacy. So a harder money that you can hold is easier, easier to hide. On the other way around, I will argue that uh, if your money is not dark, it cannot be really hard. Uh, first of all, because uh, uh, if it's not dark at the personal user level, so you cannot easily hide that you have it or, the, or your private key in, in, in this specific sense, then the, 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 the more powerful attacker which in this case is the government, might could be just uh, uh, common bandits or, or, or others, they will come. And if you cannot hide the fact that you have it and where you have it and how much you have it, and uh, in a more extreme scenario, even your private keys. So if you don't have darkness, if you have complete loss of secrecy, then they can just take it and not making it, and making it not hard anymore. Like if, if you cannot inflate the supply, well, okay, they, they can just take you the same amount of the supply instead. So uh, another example is if, uh, for example, imagine that we, we have a Bitcoin that is uh, limited in supply, 21 millions and everything, but the government will enforce uh, uh, KYC rules. So every time you accept Bitcoin transaction, you need to have a KYC uh, whitelisting of the UTXOs that you use. In this case, the question is, if the, the government was powerful enough to prevent you from running a Bitcoin node without those a additional restriction, which is basically a soft fork, if the government is, is, is able to prevent you from running original Bitcoin and is forcing you to running Bitcoin plus whitelisting, what is actually stopping the government from forcing you to also run uh, a Bitcoin, which is a hard fork, and it's, for example, using some kind of inflated cap? So the people are thinking that Privacy and the 21 million are completely separated things. And the government will just, uh, so, some people, not all, but they imagine that the government will uh, basically uh, c- clamp down on privacy. But then once everything is not private, they will, uh, they will just magically leave the 21 million thing go untouched. But I think this is fundamentally misguided because the government, for example, imagine the USA government, the government of the United States. They, uh, they, may wa- they may like prohibition because it's control on people. So they may want to, uh, to stop people from buying weed. Sure, okay, maybe they won't. But what is more important for the United States government? Stopping people from buying weed or stopping savings of the nation uh, from escaping inflation tax? 
So the 90, I, w- I will not know how to quantify it, but I would say that probably 80, 80 to 90% of uh, government spending is not now funded by direct taxation. So coming to your home and taking your money. It's funded by issuing debt and they printing money to take your money out of cantillon effect to repay the debt, to monetize basically the debt. So the budget of the federal government of the United States is based on inflation. If you have a money that will not be used to buy weed, but will be used to basically destroy 90% of the federal budget of the government by, by making savings of most people government resistant, I mean, you have to assume that the effort that the government will put into monetary compliance will be orders of money to the more of the effort about weed buying compliance. Nobody cares about weed. So it's a canary in the, in the, in, in the mine. It's a litmus test. If you cannot resist uh, a white listing to make it private uh, for buying weed, for sure it cannot resist an analog white listing to make it easy to inflate. So that's uh, and the last argument, and then I stop because my answer are too long. Uh, the last the last point is fungibility. Uh, in order to stay hard, uh, the money has to have uh, not not only hard to manipulate supply, but also a good demand. And if you break fungibility, so if people cannot accept this kind of money without having to spend unpredictable cost in order to know if it's the legit variant. So I, I come to your shop, I pay with cash, you take the cash and you give me the money. You don't care for anything else. I pay to your, uh, to your sh- I come to your shop, I give you the money and now you have to imagine what are the various regulators of various, country, of various countries thinking about how many on-chain hopes I have to spend between a conjoin and that? That's, that's breaking down any kind of accept, acceptance of fungibility breakdown will reduce the liquidity of money because it will increase the cost of acceptance, the cost of receiving. Uh, in an unpredictable way, because uh, I, I, maybe you are Julian Assange, so I really have to look at uh, maybe your money is coming from the cousin of the barber of Julian Assange, and I have to know that. So that's basically breaking. So we need both. Uh, dark money cannot not be hard, and hard money cannot not be dark. Yeah, interesting. And as you rightly point out, there is a reason the state demands control of money. And there's actually a very great uh, essay by Hans-Hermann Hopper talking about why the state demands control of money. And as you rightly say, if Bitcoin were to get captured to that point, then the supply cap may get manipulated or it may be manipulated upwards by some kind of uh, politician who wants to promise the world in terms of spending and so on. So that's probably an example where there is an argument there that you actually need both longer term. Now, I think the counterpoint and probably what people might be thinking is, well, there is a challenge in terms of Bitcoin today because many of the people entering the Bitcoin ecosystem are doing that through a KYC entry point, through a know your, you know, through a, an exchange or a broker or some kind of service where they have to provide government documentation and there is a list now of you know people. Uh, that could be requested by the government or it could be hacked by a third party. And so this is a difficult thing because we're all in this ecosystem and we're trying to advance Bitcoin. But at the same time, there's this you know government regulation, which many of us don't like, would prefer did not exist. Uh, but for certain businesses above a certain size and scale, they have to operate, they have to play in that white market space. So 
How do you think about that balance there of businesses who are in the KYC white market world as opposed to the peer-to-peer world? So I think there will always be uh, a, a trade-off between convenience and censorship resistance. So if you want maximum convenience, just use fiat uh, as long as you can. Uh, eventually, you will not be able to. So when you have centralization, you have efficiency, you have uh, convenience. Everything is easy. Everything is, is cheap. Everything is fast. Until it's not because you're Russian, because you're a tracker, because, because you don't fit anymore the fragile political uh, whitelisting. So everything is convenient until it's not. In, if you go on the decentralized uh, part of the uh, of extreme of the specter, it's the opposite. Everything is so inconvenient. Everything is low, expensive, inefficient. Like buying Bitcoin without KYC, but I mean, you can use Azteco. You have to move, you have to find the shop, move around, take some cash. If you have money in the bank, you have to withdraw the money first and banks are not happy to let you withdraw the money. Then you have to go there, but you have limits in your Azteco vouchers. So you have to buy more in the, or the ATMs is the same or Hodl is the same and BSQ is the same. There is a lot of inconvenience. So the point is that you, you may prefer to go where it's convenient until you can. But the main thing we, we should be actually aware of is that the problem is that eventually you, you will not be able to anymore because the point of this censorship is that it keeps growing and excluding. The more the government is becoming bankrupt, the more it will try to implement stuff like negative interest rates. And the more they will want to implement negative uh, interest rates, the more they will try to stop you from going outside the system. And so they will basically censor you if you go out of the system. So they will find new way to confiscate, censor. And they did it already with, with uh, this is another good example of hard money that was not dark enough. Gold, physical gold before Roosevelt confiscated it from the American people uh, in a Western democracy. So not, not, in, not in North Korea. In a, in a recent, historically recent Western democracy, the president of the United States confiscated gold from people. Gold was hard, but it was not dark enough because it was not hidden in, in private homes, but just in this very easy to spot uh, third parties. And so the point is, we have, we have to know the end goal. The end goal is that at equilibrium, this money will be either censored or confiscated. So the convenience that we are, we, we are basically getting now it is at the expenses of the absolute lack of convenience that we will have when we will be confiscated or taxed or punished. Also, as you said, we are thinking about the government because in, geopolitical, in, in geopolitically stressful times, like now, like in the 30s, there may be something like Roosevelt confiscating the gold of, of, of the American people. Sure, like, like Hitler did in Germany or, or basically elsewhere. But as you say, it is not just about the government. It's also about uh, personal security against uh, random bandits. For example, people were scared, rightly so, about the leak in the, uh, in the uh, ledger customer list because uh, these, uh, these people, they, they basically acquired this list of people buying a ledger device. Now they knew that you had this name and, and, uh, and shipping address and you had a ledger, so now they could try to either attack you or blackmail you or, or do phishing attacks on you and stuff like that. And this worked because now they had a list of uh, high conversion rate victims for their attack. Same goes with BlockFi and more recent leaks. Eventually, when you put your personal financial data into something, this will leak eventually and it will be, it will be used to attack you in a more targeted way. And the KYC 
uh, lists are the most dangerous of all because compare like you compare a ledger uh, ledger uh, sh- shipping uh, shipping list where you just have your name maybe your company name plus uh, your shipping address not not necessarily your home address and the fact that you own a ledger so somebody could assume that you may have some level of coin compare that where a kyc list when they have exactly your legal name with your valid documents your residency with a proof of residency that you have to to give the exchange and where they have the exact amount of all the coins you buy and the exact address of withdrawal and on the on-chain movement of these addresses after the withdrawal. So you cannot even say, okay, I sold it, I've lost it. Ah, oh, no, I can I can look on chain and I see what you have done. So KYC lists are extremely dangerous because also they are not keep they are not kept inside the exchange. They are sent by the exchange to several government agencies around the world. So you have uh, literally thousands of people accessing, accessing this list. So the probability of leaking is eventually uh, strong. And that's a danger for you for you and your other ones. So in order to answer to your question, I think that nowadays we cannot fight the, the fact that KYC stuff is easier for privileged first world people that are not yet censored than the alternatives. The alternatives are hard and slow. What we have to explain is that that suffering you are going through now by avoiding this KYC trap is not just for the sake of suffering. It is because the first way will eventually increase the amount of harm you will receive probably when the, the situation will go, will go in a certain direction. And the probability the situation will go in a uh, like a idyllic, uh, a utopian opposite direction are very, very low. I don't want to say they are zero, but the probability that we will see less censorship, less taxation, less confiscation, and less uh, uh, random banditism are very, very low. And so the situation around privacy in Bitcoin, there are challenges, I think it's fair to say. And so I'm curious your view as well, as we look back on the Bitcoin industry, uh, yeah. So, do you see it like the right tools need to be built, or is it a is it a matter of the way that the businesses in Bitcoin have gone that have been too much, you know, around KYC, or is it around the community that the community should be more anti KYC in your view? Like, how would you are there things that the community should have done, or is it more just that the ongoing encroachment of government and KYC was just always baked into the cake from the beginning? So I think that one of the main issues about this technology is, uh, uh, I would say, two of the main issues. They are issues that we should discuss and analyze and maybe mitigate, but I don't think there, there, is, there is any obvious way around. The first issue is that the, the digital realm, the, the internet, uh, digital, the digital identity, online digital anonymous identity or pseudonymous identity, they create a lot of space for freedom because uh, the, the attacker, we are not physically in front of the attacker, so the, tri- the symmetry is, is limited. So the internet was a force for freedom in the, like, you know, the, the Arab Springs uh, or the black markets or uh, everywhere, or even just people uh, like spreading the content of some uh, laptop on Twitter right now, even if, if it's forbidden. So it's, it's a way to, to counteract censorship. But it's also a, a, a technological stack that will leak information everywhere. So when you're using the internet, you have more power than when you have to physically move and pay your provider uh, with physical gold or stuff or physical cash. You, you have more power. You can easily buy your secret 
medicine or medical certificate across the world. Uh, so you're, you are basically entering a more powerful market with more exchanges, but at the price of leaking more. Bitcoin lives on the internet and the Lightning Network lives on the internet. And everything we do will have non-trivial possibility to leak information. So privacy on the internet is in general hard. If we go around with physical gold, that's intrinsically easier to stay private. But it's, even, it's way, way less powerful. So I'm not suggesting to just stop using the internet and, and just withdraw from the global market. Uh, you don't get more freedom if you just stay. I mean, yeah, you have the freedom to stay in your own local prison without weapons, food, and, and any kind of medical support. Of course, that you're more private, you're darker if you stay in your coffin, but you're not powerful. You're not, you're not leveraging the, 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 the darkness that you get. So Bitcoin needs to stay on the internet and the internet sucks for privacy. We have to accept this, explain this to people, know that you can make many mistakes and eventually you will make mistakes. There is no perfect privacy, no perfect darkness. You just have to, it's better that you leak something and you know it and you can prepare accordingly than just to think your privacy is perfect because it's, it's most likely isn't. Then more specifically in, the, in, the, in Bitcoin, we have another additional problem. Bitcoin is as hard for privacy as any other internet system. Plus, we also have the specific Bitcoin problem of the global consensus. So the great invention by Satoshi Nakamoto, the time chain or blockchain, he solves the the double spending problem uh, in a decentralized way at the settlement layer, but it basically makes so that every other node of the system will have to register all the information forever. So if I give you a gold nugget, you, you keep it, and other gold owner, they don't care. If I give you a Bitcoin on chain, there are other ways, but if I give you Bitcoin in the first layer of Bitcoin, then every other Bitcoin user forever will have to download and verify that information, which basically creates a paradox that we may solve in two ways. And one way is what I call, I'm, I'm not sure my definitions are very standard, but I don't care. I like them. I, th- I think they are clear. One, one way is privacy by obfuscation. So we keep sending this information to everybody forever, but we obfuscate this information with more information. For example, instead of a clear uh, signature, we put some blinded Chaumian signature. Instead of, uh, uh, of uh, one input and one output, we, we put uh, 10 inputs and 10 outputs in a coin join. So we are, we, are, we are using more space in order to add more information, which is a decoy information, and it's giving us a little bit more privacy and deniability. Or, or we do a lot of on-chain hopes. So instead of paying this exchange directly, I pretend to pay somebody for 10 times, and then I pay the, the exchange and I get the deniability. So all these, these techniques are fine, but they, they basically fight against the problem, the incentive problem of the global consensus. Everybody keeps having uh, all the information just obfuscated with uh, confidential transaction and uh, bu- bulletproof range proofs or ring signature and stuff or ZK snarks, for example, you are just adding more stuff to obfuscate your stuff. The other opposite uh, strategy is uh, privacy by omission, which is let's not, not use this global consensus until it's, it's necessary to use it. So, for example, Lightning, which right now is not great for privacy. If everybody's interested about Lightning and privacy, I gave a speech about that in uh, in Istanbul a few weeks ago, which I think is, is pretty much like uh, 
giving a, a broad picture of, of the problem. But in theory, lightning goes in the same direction of the incentives. Like you don't have to put everything uh, for everybody else to see. You are you are retaining the information, not obfuscating the information. And this is something that we may discuss also about Monero and Monero trade-off uh, or Zcash and, and stuff like that. So there is the internet. There is a specific problem in global consensus. And then there is a problem of mostly users not caring enough for a long time. Right now, so we, we may translate this as, uh, as it's the fault of the governments because the governments were not evil enough soon enough. <laughs> so people thought that they may actually get away with, uh, with free economic interaction with uh, with free with, with uh, inflation resistant saving and with uh, censorship resistant uh, markets without the government doing anything for a long time so they get they got lazy for many years they were thinking about uh, nice ux and, uh, and stuff like that but we're not they were not really caring for privacy most bitcoin wallet not not core to be to be fair but most non core bitcoin wallets they were uh, connecting with other people's node asking for all the UTXO in clearnet, so giving basically your IP, which is basically one phone call away from your legal name, to another random server. And many wallets still do that, basically, without a full node. And also, they reuse and address it. So people were basically posting an address on a blog post. I, I was doing that as well in 2013. This is my address for donation on my blog post, link it to my name, reuse it for, for 100 times, which is terrible. And many tools where actually, or uh, right, only right now, Bitcoin wallets are starting to really play with CoinJoin and PayJoin and CoinSwap and stuff. But it was possible, like uh, Gregory Maxwell analyzed CoinJoin since 2013. And only now we are really seeing, uh, uh, within all the dramas like Wasabi drama and, and everything, we are actually seeing a real interest by the users. So technological problems first, user apathy, that was driven by the lack of attacks, uh, short-term attacks. There, there are only long-term attacks. There was a very good speech by Peter Todd in Milan in 2018, and he made this, this metaphor, uh, the danger of fire versus the danger of mercury. Or uh, Basically, fire is great because when you touch it, you immediately suffer and you withdraw your hand. Mercury is shiny and nice, and you keep playing for for, for two years and then eventually, well, two years is, even, is a lot, for months, and then you get poisoning and you die and you cannot stop it. So the problem with that, uh, the, the government approach toward privacy was mercury, not fire. They are not hitting people immediately in 2009, 2010. They are slowly, slowly, slowly increasing censorship, increasing uh, surveillance. So technological challenges, users' apathy. And the third is exchanges. Exchanges are a problem because exchanges are a fiat business that need a bank account. So they are, they really, exchanges, the central, typical centralized exchanges, in order to survive, they need to beg the government and the fiat banking system. They, they, they exist only out of mercy uh, and complacence of, of these centralized entities. So while a business without a central uh, a, a bank account may actually become pretty much resistance to regulatory pressure. Now, we, 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 I mentioned Wasabi, and right now this, the, this, the company behind Wasabi coordination, Zika's Next, they actually self-censored, uh, imposing themselves some level of censorship on the, on the users, which was not legally required. But this is a typical dynamic of, uh, you know, VC-funded companies where the legal team is, gets scared and they will start to scare everybody else. But in theory, 
a, 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 an entity like ZK Snacks, but could also exist as a pure anonymous uh, Tor service. So it, it's, it's resistant. The specific company basically was was destroyed by this by this self censorship. But another company as centralized as that will actually survive. Not so with the exchanges, because exchanges, centralized exchanges, typical custodial exchanges, they need a bank account. And you can never have a bank account without uh, uh, bending your knee completely to regulation. And so they started not only to accept uh, regulation, but also to, uh, they, most exchanges, they were more proactive about censoring people than the government themselves. Even when the governments were not actually understanding Bitcoin at all, most exchanges were basically self-imposing stricter KYC rules, even stricter than, than, than requested, because they were so scared to get put out of business by a bank account closing. Imagine this. You have a normal bank. You withdraw cash from, uh, from, the, from the ATM. They spy you within the bank, of course, because they know everything. But once you withdraw the, the cash, they don't pay for a private investigator to follow you in, in your car to see where do you <laughs> spend the cash. They don't do that. They are not forced to do that because it's expensive. Uh, Bitcoin exchanges, when you withdraw the Bitcoin to your address, they will hire people, private investigators, to follow you outside of the system in public internet, just like a private, just like a PI following you in the street after the KYC interaction. And the exchanges are paying for that. Because they are terrorized by, they want to appear as such good boys that, that, that they go beyond. And actually, exchanges are the one preventing people from not reusing addresses. Most exchanges, when you withdraw, they will force you or, or push you to reuse the address. And they will, uh, they will say, we, some of them will freeze your account or flag your account if they see that you are using uh, best, best security practices like CoinJoin or PayJoin and stuff like that. So exchanges are a problem. It's not that single exchange people are evil. In some cases, yes, like Coinbase, but not always. Sometimes they are good guys, but they are just forced by incentives to to be even more realist than the king. Uh, I, I don't know if it, if this is a saying in English too, but in Italy we say you are more royalist than the king himself. I don't know if there is analogous. Back to the show in a moment. Have you thought about securing your own keys with a cold card? The cold card is my favorite Bitcoin hardware wallet and you can get it at coinkite.com. Now, it has all sorts of features that you can use in various different configurations. You can use it as part of a single signature setup or you can use it as part of a multi-signature setup. And there are other features around securing your coins. So for example, you can use a passphrase, you can enable or disable that. You can also use seed XOR, which is a plausibly deniable means of storing secrets in two or more parts. And each part just behaves like like the original secret. So there's all sorts of options and ways to learn about using cold card. They've got documentation on their site and there's even quick start video guides as well. So if you're interested, go to coincard.com, order your gear there. And don't forget, they've also got other material like the metal backup to actually stamp in for your 24 words. So that's coincard.com. And if you want to remove single points of failure in your setup, Unchained Capital can help here. They have collaborative custody. So you can bring two hardware wallets and set up. Unchained will be the third key and the third uh, the co-signer in this model for you. The other way to do this is if you need some assistance, they've got a concierge onboarding program. So go there, sign up on the website. They'll ship you some hardware wallets. They'll do a call with you. They'll provide some ongoing support also. And this is an easy way to get started with your vault. They'll also deposit $1,000 in your vault to get you started. 
Now, this is an easy way to remove single points of failure. Don't leave your coins on the exchange or with a custodian. Pull them out and hold them with your own private keys and do this the self-sovereign way. So that website is unchained.com and use code Lavera for a discount. And lastly, Brains. Brains are a Bitcoin mining company through and through, and they are they are real innovators in this industry. They offer Brains OS Plus. This is aftermarket or custom firmware that you can install on your ASIC machine to optimize your miner performance and get more hash rate for your electricity bill. So go to brains.com, that's brains with two eyes, and you can see which models are supported. They are rolling out support for new models over time. They are also the operators of Slushpool. So Slushpool is the first Bitcoin mining pool, and they are also driving forward adoption of Stratum V2, which is the next generation Bitcoin mining protocol. So there are all sorts of benefits there in terms of coordination between miners and mining pools, as well as helping assist in the decentralization of Bitcoin's mining network. So Stratum V2 is a great one to check out. Go to the website. It's brains.com. That's brains with two eyes. And now back to the show. Yeah, I get what you're saying. And as this brings up this whole concept of what's called compliance bros. And so this comes in uh, in some of the discussion as well and also mentioned in your recent talk. So listeners, I will include Giacomo's talk link in uh, the show notes for this episode. I, I highly recommend you guys check it out. Um, and just for listeners, the kind of the high level summary was essentially that there are these different camps or you know uh, groups subgroups within the bitcoin world and there is one particular group which is uh let's call it derogatorily named the compliance bros and because they are the ones who are trying to proactively go to the government regulators say oh yes look mr regulator i'm stopping the crime i'm doing chain surveillance on my customers so you know please do not ban me please do not stop my banking relationships right and look into I guess to steel man that a little bit, right? Obviously, I'm not defending that, but there's a steel man here, which is that government regulations sometimes are unclear. And so sometimes they have to, they sort of exploit that gray. They're playing with the gray. They're saying, look, you, um, you bank, you must do KYC and you must do AML and you must do a risk assessment. And look, cash is very high risk. What are you doing to mitigate that risk? Uh, Mr. Ex- Mr. Bank. And in this case, in the Bitcoin exchanges, they're, they're sort of, in that kind of, oh, we don't want them to ban us. We need to look like we're trying to do something. Oh, oh, look, here's these chain surveillance companies. And there's a little bit of a, let's call it regulatory capture play going on here because these chain surveillance companies obviously want to have themselves put in and have the regime back them in that way and say the regime will will then come out and mandate that all the other exchanges must do chain surveillance. Now, currently, that's not the case. It's not a mandated requirement, but this is, I guess sort of where the conversation is going now because of the conversations about Bitcoin, you know, growing up or maturing and so on. Uh, And that obviously causes some tension in the community because there are those who say, no, Bitcoin needs to be dark money, right? And so do you see it like compliance bros are able to kill Bitcoin? Is that sort of what you're getting at? Or are you saying that essentially that this is something that has to be pushed back on? Yeah, the, the the latter. I don't think they have the if they have the power to kill Bitcoin, Bitcoin is doomed anyway. So there is a it's better to know before than later. So if compliance bros can kill Bitcoin, they should and please do it immediately so that we know that Bitcoin is is failed as an experiment because if, if because by definition, if that's all it takes to kill Bitcoin, I think the problem is that they cannot kill Bitcoin, but they can get some Bitcoiners killed in a at least in a financial way. Uh, they can get people 
spied upon, censored, confiscated, and uh, not the system itself. The system is very resilient, but single people are not resilient. And uh, we have seen that with uh, like uh, uh, the, the trackers, uh, the trackers protest or others. You, you have the, the, the Bitcoin is decentralized, but single Bitcoiners aren't. And that's maybe the problem. To be fair, I appreciate your still manning because it's true. Like for myself also, I remember. So in Bitcoin, privacy is the strange things because it's all or nothing. Either Bitcoin is completely private because of pseudonymous used in the transactions are not connected with legal names. So there is total privacy or it's completely unprivate because at least at the base layer, once you connect the names with the people, the names are so connected among them that you can basically leak everything. You can spy on the past and future private financial data of everybody. So you have total privacy or complete lack of privacy and personal security as well, because you can have kidnappers or, 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 or blackmailers on any kind of stuff. So this kind of stuff, of course, Bitcoin can work if it's completely private. Uh, but it cannot work if it's, if it's completely non-private because of these things we, we said about dark money. So I think that money where you cannot protect yourself, there is no point to that against fiat because if if you don't have the secrecy to protect you from your physically more powers, powerful adversarial, then what's the point of the cypherpunk strategy at all? So you, you have this kind of, of problem. At the beginning, the regulators were not really understanding anything about Bitcoin. So uh, there was a temptation, and I felt this temptation myself, and I, and I fall for it, to actually uh, ride the total traceability uh, narrative in order to reassure the regulator and delay the attack. So the point was, okay, we can use Bitcoin privately, but Bitcoin is also in a way totally traceable. So let's insist on this second part, which is not really a lie. It's a, it's a, it's a white lie omission. So let's insist about this. And so we created, I did it in Italy when I had an advocacy group, this kind of myth that Bitcoin is completely traceable. You cannot commit crime with Bitcoin. Of course, if you cannot commit crimes with Bitcoin, Bitcoin sucks as money because it's like selling shoes and you say, okay, you can never rob banks with these shoes. You're basically selling very, very shitty shoes. I mean, they don't work if you cannot use them to run from a, from a, ba- from a bank robber. So Bitcoin can be used for crimes, for sure, as long as it works. But uh, we promoted the other way around in order to to make the regulator uh, sleep a little bit more and to buy time. I mean, please don't don't attack us. Let so in the meantime we build stuff, we build uh, privacy instruments, we build uh, power, we build uh, we build uh, wealth as well, and we and we buy time. The problem with this approach is that at the same time, uh, while you uh, you basically uh, gaslight the regulator, which is fine, you know, gaslighting the attacker is fine, you also get gaslight eventually future users. So you will have users that think that, uh, A, uh, they think that uh, nobody will ever come at them Bitcoin because, you know, it's totally traceable, I'm fine, so nobody will confiscate you. Wrong. If, if we want to teach you, honestly, we have to teach you history about uh, Roosevelt confiscation. If if the monetary impact of Bitcoin is what it may be, if it works, they will try to attack you because the federal budget of the United States of America will be destroyed because the county loan tax will not be there anymore. So uh, then the other problem is people will receive, not expert people will receive the notion that Bitcoin is, is basically bad for privacy because they are not stupid. Maybe they are not expert, but they read. Bitcoin is totally traceable. 
they know that they need financial privacy because financial privacy is important for personal security, and they will just dismiss Bitcoin. Maybe they will go into some kind of privacy shitcoin. Maybe they will just uh, stay outside of the of the global internet market because they think that there is no option. Maybe they will so they will self censor because uh, they will think that Bitcoin cannot be used privately. Why it can with a lot of challenges and attention, but it can more than uh, for of course more than credit cards. Bitcoin is, is very bad for privacy compared to physical gold, but more powerful because it's on the internet. If you compare it with other stuff on the internet, like credit cards or PayPal or your own banking, Bitcoin privacy is great. It's not bad, it's great. It's just that it's not as good as, as physical cash or physical gold because it's on the internet, because there's global consensus. So the, the, the idea of the, an, an exchange that will promote traceability in order to gaslight the regulator, I think it's fine short term. If it's just a strategy to buy time in order to strengthen the the privacy of the users, if it's a long term strategy and you end up gaslighting the users instead of the regulators, that's very, very bad. Yeah. So as you rightly point out, I think it is important that people have the right expectation that they don't believe that, oh, just because I'm using Bitcoin, I'm private. Well, no, you need to take some additional steps. You might need to use CoinJoin. You might need to use various techniques to actually remain private you might need to use tall and obviously some wallets have this built in so you know specter or samurai wallet or some other ones uh might have that built in so that you can do that and well, so well, I think- sorry stefan same if not worse with the so-called privacy coins this is ma- this is a long discussion but my main issue with like monero for example is not really that it cannot be used in some kind of secure setup in order to improve privacy. My name issue is that the narrative is coming up as Bitcoin is not private, just as Monero, you're fine. Well, well, usually, for a series of reasons, you may end up with less privacy doing that if you do that in a trivial way. So uh, it's, it's true for Bitcoin, it's true for everything else. You don't have privacy just because you buy some privacy Kool-Aid. You really need to understand the threat model and to understand what you're doing. Right, right. And on that point, I think it might be interesting as well just to get your thoughts here. Because as you, you know, calling back to what we were saying earlier, you might still need to exchange in and out. So again, I, I don't use Monero. I'm not shilling Monero, but just hypothetically exploring that idea of if you were to use Bitcoin as your overall store of value, but then periodically swap in and out of Monero, that still necessitates using swapping kinds of services and okay fine uh even again there's a steel man there as well of there are some automated swap services or even even abstracting away from monero i mean could that be done with say lbtc on liquid right and could there be some kind of coin join using liquid and confidential assets how are you viewing this idea of having automated atomic swapping whether it's in the case of using monero or in the case of using say liquid btc how are you seeing that as a potential if someone was to, was to steal man you and say oh what if you use bitcoin as your store of value and monero or lbtc as your privacy coin well the atomic swaps the automatic atomic swaps they help security so they do help it's better to have an atomic swap tool compared to to some kind of custodial uh, exchange, sure, but it doesn't really help privacy. In a way, it makes it even worse because in order to atomic swap, you need a public order book of BDNS, especially if the two things that you are exchanging are not at the same price. 
then you will need liquidity. So you will need somebody able to, to give you Monero in exchange of Bitcoin. And they will have to publicly signal this kind of a viability in some kind of public book. And you will have to signal the opposite. And then you will have to match. In a way, having the necessity to do that in a decentralized, open, automatic, trustless way will actually increase the, uh, the exposure of the order book. And the order book, by definition, will have a limited amount of liquidity. So that will be an unknown set bottleneck because uh, now you know that you are passing through this market. And so you know that whoever is the seller, it cannot be everybody in Monero. It can only be somebody, and then you have, of course, a network uh, privacy where you have to, to send somewhere this kind of pricing, which is the same for some conjoint implementation. For example, I use, I use joint market. In joint market, you have to publish uh, on IRC your, your bid and ask in a way. How is that different from, for example, Liquid? It's slightly better, not completely better. It's still problematic. Like if nobody, for example, one of the reasons I, I really didn't use uh, or promoted or suggested Liquid as a privacy tool for a long time is, is slightly getting better now, but it would be dishonest to say just use Liquid and, and you're set, is that nobody was using Liquid up to a certain point uh, in time uh, and very, very few transactions. So even if you have confidential transactions there, if nobody's using that, the anonymity set that you're getting from Liquid is very slow. But uh, why is better than Anatomic Swap with Monero, for example? For two reasons. The first is the pegout requires an order book. So you have this liquidity problem. The peg-in doesn't. When you peg in Liquid, there is not an exchange. You don't have to, you, there is not a liquidity bottleneck. Uh, every Satoshi can become a liquid Satoshi automatically without passing through a liquidity bottleneck. So an unknown set bottleneck. You, you just have a set and now you have your liquid set. The other way around is not, but at least you have one half of the swapping that will preserve your anonymity set instead of reducing it in a, in a bottleneck due to the order book. Uh, the second point is that when you don't have a price difference and a slippage, when you don't have trading, but you just have swapping, usually the liquidity is, uh, is uh, easier to, to, prov to, to declare, provide. So an order book where you have a lot of people just uh, saying that they are, they are, they are randomly swapping uh, liquid for liquid Bitcoin and, and, and over, there, if there is not a strong financial premium for each, you don't have slippage and usually the matching is simpler and you have more liquidity because you don't have just the people that want to trade. You have the people who want, I mean, uh, you, I just need a small fixed premium in order to, uh, I can put all my Bitcoins, of course, I will not do it because it will be a hot, hot storage, but I could put all my Bitcoin there, just accepting a, a swap to Bitcoin Liquid and then back, provided that I just put a small fixed premium on both. So I don't care. While I will not put all my wealth in a, a Monero swap proposal because there are economic considerations. So a side chain is a little bit better for privacy than a swap across chains. And what is even better, way better than liquid, but it's still a swap, is actually lightning. Uh, it has to be perfected in many, many ways. But right now, if I open a lightning channel with some Bitcoin and then I do a summary swap out, I will do a coin swap, not between Bitcoin and Monero, but between Bitcoin and Bitcoin with way better uh, level of privacy than, than Atomic's world with Monero. Because with Monero, you need an order book of Monero people selling me with some price and some amount. 
with uh, Atomic Swap, you still need, with Summary Swap, you need a market, which in this case, for example, it's Bolts, if you do that with uh, with Electrum or with Phoenix. But this market is, not, there's no, basically there's, there's no slippage, so it's way more efficient. It's way harder to follow, uh, to, to restrict the anonymity set using that. So swapping Bitcoin is fine, but the best thing is to swap Bitcoin for Bitcoin. Uh, ideally, you want to swap Bitcoin for on-chain Bitcoin with some tool like CoinSwap by Chris Belcher, which is not perfected yet and needs more work. Uh, less ideally, you swap for Lightning, which requires some level of market premium because because liquidity and rotability are not always the same. But still, it's a, it's an example of DeFi basically. It's a decentralized finance where you where you will find a counterpart. And then uh, the, the the other uh, third best will be swapping to a Bitcoin sidechain where at least the pegin is that doesn't reduce your anonymity set and you don't have slippage. And the fourth best will be sweeping to, for example, Monero and back. And then you have to consider all the consideration about how much liquidity there is on Monero and how much unknown set. In Monero, you meet, your unknown set is basically every previous user of Monero is a part of your anonymity set in Monero when you're in. But even that is not much compared to the to the volume that's going on in Bitcoin. I would say it's comparable. The whole uh, anonymity set of Monero, will, of course, it, calculating the anonymity set depends on a thread model, specifically of what your attacker are, are looking for. But in general, the amount of people using Monero is so, and the volume are so low, that even all the anonymity set of Monero can actually be trivially compared with some huge joint market uh, uh, coin joint rounds, for example. Minus, of course, the amount correlation problem that you don't have in Monero or Liquid, and you do have in Bitcoin on chain. So it's the, the, I think the takeaway is it's complicated. Yeah, no, so I agree with if you. Somebody no. says, <laughs> yeah. because at the same if somebody time... says you, you cannot be private hmm. with Bitcoin, it's lying. If somebody says you, you can be perfectly private forever without effort with this other thing, he's lying. Right. Yeah. And I mean, there's other considerations there as well. So as an example, even in the Bitcoin world, there are other fingerprints or heuristics that could be applied. So they could say, okay, what's the scripts type? What's the end lock time? What's the sequence number or some of these other things that could then narrow down the Bitcoin anonymity set, where if you compare that versus say Monero, then it actually gets a bit more comparable. I mean, who knows? And then the other point that's interesting as well is that could it be that these things later themselves become the surveillance mechanism? So uh, giving an example, in the early days of Electrum, there were you know people just using Electrum Wallet and the Electrum servers. And then later it's kind of figured out, oh, the chain surveillance firms figured out, hey, let's just be the Electrum servers for people and use that to surveil. In the same way, could there be surveillance put on at those swap over points, the atomic swap over points, potentially even maybe not inside the Monero world, but let's say when you're trying to swap back out of Monero back into Bitcoin, could there be surveillance levered, leveraged at those points? And then that's also another consideration potentially also. Absolutely. If you now do what I said uh, in order to swap your coins, you have to know that if you're, uh, let's say, let's assume, let's give it an ex- a realistic scenario. Use Electrum to create uh, a, a channel uh, and then you swap out using bolts. If uh, the bolts uh, market is full of a civil attacking liquid, so, so if, if uh, the, the, the bolts market is uh, compromised and is basically matching your request of swap out with a lot of uh, chain analysis uh, money, uh, then uh, it, they, they know half of your trade. They, st- they have to collude 
with your trampoline node, which may be Electrum itself or, or a sink or other, if they collude with trampoline node, now they can denonymize you. It's still pretty good, I would say, especially compared to nothing, but there is an attack and a threat model in, in that as well. There is one big advantage, though, between uh, what you can do on-chain and what you can do in, do in this kind of swaps. The advantage is that on-chain, even a passive attacker can spy you forever. So on-chain heuristic, they stay there forever. You don't have to spend money outside computation in order to, to make your guessing and connection. If you want to attack Bitcoin on a lightning level or swap level or lightning routing level or Monero versus Bitcoin swap market, you need to put money you need to put your money where your where your spying eye, where, where your nose is. So you want to sniff somebody, you need to pay. So like assume that the, the government of the United States want to basically compromise 90% of the uh, lightning channels. They have to buy Bitcoin and put a lot of Bitcoin there, uh, increasing the price. So it's bad because they're attacking us, but there is, there is no free lunch, at least in attacking. While uh, chain analysis can be done completely passively which is a little bit easier. It's unfairly easy for them. So let's let's make it harder. It's unfairly cheap right now. Let's make it harder, yeah. One other area I was keen to chat about, and you touched on this before, is this idea of creating a soft fork, like maybe unintentionally, right? But I think that's an important question as we're considering this whole trade-off and there's the different uh, groups within Bitcoin and you could arguably, let's say there's kind of compliance bro number go up aspect and that that's the criticism is, ah, oh, see, you compliance bros don't care about the ethos of Bitcoin. You just want number go up. You don't care about regulation as long as it, it pumps your number go up. Uh, and the privacy gang, you know, the, the never KYC gang, right? And I, I, I'm not, I don't, I have anything against non-KYC acquisition of coins, but I think just in that interest of talking about what exactly would that soft fork look like? How would that conflict play out uh, if, let's say, uh, governments tried to mandate certain whitelists or blacklists? And I think what I'm getting to here is how feasible is that really? Because at the same time, there could be different countries who have different ideas of what should be sanctioned. And even in today, even in the fiat banking world, the US government has their sanctions on various Russian you know, oligarchs, as they say, but then also the Russian government has their sanctions on President Biden and Jen Psaki and some of these other people. And so how realistic even is that idea in your mind? So I think that uh, collusion, strict collusion among uh, earth governments is a very rare phenomenon, but it's a more and more common phenomenon. The, the present crisis with Russia and Ukraine is actually a tragic, of course, crisis for, for everybody. It's, it's horrible, but it's a good example in this regard because now you have... Uh, blocks of uh, not completely symmetric but quite powerful adversaries and you have uh, also neutral blocks like now you have Russia you have China you have the US the NATO and everybody is is trying to censor everybody else in a very uncoordinated way in adversarial way there are, there are a few different blocks and that's actually an example of uh, of uh, of censorship that can be uh, if if not it does hurt people, of course. Now you are a Russian uh, pacifist in uh, uh, with a with a Ukrainian uh, wife in the U.S. and now your uh, your property is confiscated. So it's terrible. But at least there is no a single source of uh, censorship. There's not a single white list. So it's, it's not easy to, for example, so for Bitcoin following. Uh, Russia sanctions because there is Russia which which will do the other way around and China will not follow and stuff like that. 
another example which is more scary though will be for example uh, the global war, war on terror where uh, Putin and Bush were allied in order to sanction very very few of course I mean terrorists are bad but if you break down the money using terrorists as an excuse it's it's even worse because now people cannot even use it to protect themselves from terrorists another example is covid actually like uh, the the covid restriction that was an example where i mean trump was putting just uh, the same amount of restriction than than putin literally putin enforced a vaccination proof and lockdowns so okay you had some contrarians specifically like sweden belarus and most of africa and but but there was a strong global coordination and uh, you have something similar in in drug uh, drug prohibition so there are some uh, the geopolitical crises among strong blocs are an example where coordination among governments is difficult but there are many example of rhetorics uh, think about like global warming if we want to to censor or confiscate bitcoin for global warming you have the government of the taliban officially subscribing to the uh, global warming emergency measures. So you have the Taliban uh, actually concerned about uh, 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 CO2. So I think it's not realistic to have uh, a global whitelisting effort. Like uh, right now in the banking system, you cannot pay uh, without a strong KYC everywhere, including former uh, tax havens, in the Caribbean, they they're all they were all blacklisted by the United States, and in order to that this blacklisting was so hurtful that they all had to comply eventually. Panama, Dubai, everybody. Well, D- Dubai is still still keeping it, but everybody eventually is capitulating. So you don't have this 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 idea of uh, geographic arbitrage and jurisdictional arbitrage, where you just pick your government uh, that are all enforcing different stuff. It was great in the 90s. It was great at the beginning of the 2000s, but now it's falling down because there is a hegemonic power which is getting trans transnational. In a way, this recent war with Russia is weakening this global coordination. But I, I don't think it's going to, to stand for very long. Uh, like China and the United States are very much aligned to uh, the same objective, which is preventing their own people from uh, exporting capital and from escaping inflation. And I think that the Xi and Biden will agree that they, we need more control to avoid people to, to use their money freely. They will completely agree. So the, the idea of coordination will, is not so realistic. Of course, you make a very good point because uh, the only way that KYC can be uh, globally enforced is in such a coordination. Because uh, if, you, if you have a local whitelist or, or blacklist, that's basically that's just like saying nobody can use Bitcoin that way. So you, you have the, the, the KYC Bitcoin without the global whitelisting would be so crypto that nobody will actually be able to use it because when you receive free Bitcoin because you don't care, you receive Bitcoin, you, you give your service and that's all. When you receive Bitcoin and you want to stay compliant, now you have to, to wonder which whitelist I'm going to follow and in which combination and which jurisdiction is going to hurt me eventually. You, you basically cannot accept that money because you don't know uh, how the money may be tainted. So the only way you can actually impose that kind of whitelisting is if the whitelisting is automatic and consistent. So you basically connect with the, uh, with the uh, global task force, anti-money laundry global task force database, and they tell you uh, the UTXO you cannot accept. And, uh, and that's basically how you do it. And that's basically becomes, strictly speaking, a Bitcoin short fork. 
because in that case, because the Bitcoin protocol tells you that you have to accept a transaction, which is which if the block is right and the, the block size is right and the difficulty is right and the signatures are right and the script is right and the witness. So that's the consensus of Bitcoin. If it's okay, you accept it. If you if you sway from this consensus and you impose impose additional rule, you are creating a, a, a soft fork in your node. And if, you, if these additional rules are querying a database by the Financial Crime Task Force, then you are basically switching to a completely centralized form of money. And my and my hypothesis would be that eventually the value of this centralized shitcoin will will gravitate towards zero. Because, why? Because this the thing you will be able to do with that from spending to saving will be the same things you are allowed to do with fiat money on PayPal. If PayPal allows you that, then whitelisted Bitcoin will allow you that. But then we just use PayPal because it's there is more network effect and it's it's technically easier to use because it's centralized. And having a all this decentralized system, just in order to ask the the, the, the global financial crime task force, which you think so I can accept, well, just close the mining down and leave the, the task force to tell you about the double spending as well. I mean, they're, they're already censoring your, your TXO set with the wet listing. So just ask them to censor double spending as well and throw away the mining. So there is literally no point in regulated Bitcoin. All the design of Bitcoin and all the sacrifices and the trade-offs that Bitcoin has to make as a design make sense only because you don't have to ask somebody to tell you which payments are good or not. And you only have to relate with your with your counterparty, local counterparty. So uh, I think that eventually the, the this kind of regulated Bitcoin will be worthless. Right. And I think another challenge point would be coming up with a coherent definition. Because even now, yes, there are some Bitcoin addresses on an OFAC sanctions list, right? So this is like a US government entity saying these sanctioned Bitcoin addresses but at the same time, as most people understand, in Bitcoin, you can trivially create new addresses. And as you were saying earlier, could this person just trivially insert some hops? And then, okay, then if the rule is, oh, no, it can't be within two hops, then can people just start doing three hops? Or can people start using other techniques like coin join or lightning swapping in and out or whatever to evade that or basically circumvent this kind of control? So I think in that aspect, it's not clear to me how they would come up with a coherent definition there unless they were to go with a whitelisting approach of this idea of oh you may not transact with us unless you're already on our kyc whitelisting in which case we come back to that same problem that you were saying of the soft fork you're basically creating a soft fork of bitcoin and at that point you might end up forking off and having a, a minority chain that's a that's a great point so blacklisting doesn't work with bitcoin basically that's the point because you cannot have a co coherent definition uh, there was recently we mentioned the wasabi crisis so the coordinator uh, is now censoring and so i was in the chat and basically i say this is very bad because you will have to hire a um a chain analysis company to tell you which one you have to censor and some of the guys in very good faith is a good guy but he answered no 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 we are not doing that we are just, uh, uh, there will be just be a specific list of UTXOs and we will just censor that without any chain analysis. And then I said, okay, that's, that's great. So if you, if you are banned, you just make one transaction, one input, one output, and now you're not in the UTXO set anymore and you're free to transact. Well, not really. We will have to apply some level of heuristic. 
And so, okay, which, which level? If it's an arbitrary level of heuristic, the regulator can still tell you that you are not applying good heuristics and the heuristics are just as arbitrary as anybody else. So either you, you marry the official politically approved heuristics by the chain analysis bosses, or you are still not uh, going to avoid uh, sanctions or fines or whatever you're scared about. So you have to hire a chain analysis company. And then Nopara73, Adam, the, the founder, basically, uh, he, he just said that. Uh, I mean, he, he's not really putting much lipstick on this this uh, dramatic peak. He said, uh, we will have to hire chain anal company because they, they do have to. And another example would be like Coinbase or uh, uh, like Binance Singapore, they censor you if you use uh, CoinJoin. Of course, you may use CoinJoin in a way that they don't even know about with easily with uh, with some tools. But assuming that they can trivially see that you're using CoinJoin, okay, if I re- if I receive money and uh, I I don't use CoinJoin, I just get po- paid for my service, and then then I put it on Coinbase or uh, or Binance Singapore, but somebody paying the guy paying the guy that pay me was using coinjoin are you going to to freeze me or not because if yes then basically it's trivial to make every kind of clients of coinbase or binance singapore going out we make actually drive finally coinbase and binance singapore out of business because every everything is eventually connected with somebody with something that may be a coinjoin also because every more than to input, more than to output, maybe a coin join of some sort. So uh, if they go ad infinitum, every coin is dirty already. We don't even have to, to, to make an effort. If they go one step, of course, okay, I don't, I, uh, you don't want to coin join. I just want to do one step and then I pay to you. So they have to choose. And what they're doing right now, they're choosing arbitrary numbers. Like most Chinese companies, they're saying seven. Uh, if you co- if we find something seven steps, then... Uh, we will signal it to you. Otherwise, we, we, will, we will not alert you. So if you know that, you do eight. Uh, it's expensive, but you do eight and you're fine. Uh, if they go to nine, you go to 10. Uh, the problem is that there is no no coherent definition. Another example is uh, uh, now you have, uh, uh, there was a very good funny story when the marathon miners, they said that it was the first block uh, that was OFAC compliant blocks, yeah. Yeah. So, okay, they, they had the Coinbase and some people, some funny Bitcoiners started to donate from CoinJoin transaction to this, uh, to this uh, Coinbase address. And now they, I mean, sure, they could say this is a dust attack because they're not donating much. So we just uh, exclude trivially the dust attack. Sure. But then we increase the dust level anymore. Where do you stop? If you, if you exclude everything, I mean, of course you are, the more you go, the more we have to pay to taint you but or to escape the taint. But there is no consistent definition. The only way that they have, just like you say, is to basically create a static or dynamic but um, uh, like a coherent and deterministic whitelist. And the deterministic whitelist is a soft fork in the Bitcoin protocol, forking your node into a useless shitcoin. Right. And so, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm with you there. I follow you there. And so, again, that might then drive it another level where it becomes more about, oh, see, we just need to KYC every participant. And this comes into the whole conversation around travel rule, AOPP, et cetera, because it's kind of like trying to go the other way of saying, no, we 
don't like cash. We don't like this idea that we can't trace every step of the way. So let's try to fit this round peg in the square hole and say, no, every person transacting. And we see this rhetoric as well from the EU and things like talking about, quote unquote, unhosted or hosted wallets or unhosted wallets, you know, this idea that self-sovereignty is a bad thing and so on. Um, so I, I guess that's potentially where it could lead down. But then I think that also points to the importance in an ideological sense of having a circular economy, of having just peer-to-peer merchants, peer-to-peer traders and users of the ecosystem. So I'm not anti-peer-to-peer in any way. I actually think it's an ecosystem that has to be built up because then that's what's credibly making this whole soft fork idea bad because then there'll be all these people who are just not even in that system to begin with. They just never were a part of that world because they just they were just transacting outside that world. Yeah, there are challenges to this idea of circular economy. It's a great idea and it will help with censorship resistance and uh, fighting this kind of uh, trivial attack uh, surfaces like uh, exchanges are the, tri- uh, the most trivial attack surface for Bitcoin uh, used right now. Uh, you can you can go around these attack surfaces with the uh, circular economy. The, uh, I'm not deluding myself uh, about the fact that it will be hard because if a new kind of good is going to be used as money, it will have this kind of monetization phase in which the demand will go up because you will have basically the monetary demand adding up. Like gold had a aesthetical or a demand for 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 aesthetical reasons, and then you had the, uh, in two thousand years or maybe three thousand years as low monetary demand adding up and arriving to some price discovery. Bitcoin is starting from a almost zero. Uh, it, it's just a digital collectible, so almost zero aesthetical. I mean, it's, it's fine to show off uh, your uh, your your public key with some money, but it's not great. It's not a great uh, ornament for your face. Uh, at least not uh, not everywhere. So you you start from a very low uh, consume value, and all the value that is added up, all the demand that is added up is an exchange demand. It's basically a monetary demand, not not a consume demand, not a direct consuming consumption. Sorry, consumption demand. So uh, you have this this violent dynamic of monetization, which is basically creating a non- number go up situation. The number go up situation will basically make so that first, uh, most people that wants to s- to save their wealth, they will have to move their wealth from the current most widespread monetary tool, which is fiat and in particular US dollars uh, in globally, they will have to move it from there to Bitcoin. So some level of non-circular movement, uh, we cannot imagine uh, Bitcoin succeeding in become inflation resistant without people from, or censorship resistant, without people from is escaping from inflation and from censorship into Bitcoin. If they do that, they will have to escape from the place they are now, which is mostly uh, fiat. Of course, everybody has a reserve of uh, uh, goods and services that we provide for work. So we can earn Bitcoin, sure. But most of the wealth that we, will escape inflation and will escape censorship is that the, 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 the current work will trivially adopt Bitcoin earning. But the stored work, the stored time of generations and family uh, families and companies, it will not be uh, it, it will be in fiat. And so you need an uncircular entry somewhere. So there will never be, um, a, 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 there will always be tension because there will always be this interface that will be easy to attack. And once you are, it's like escaping from a prison, right? You are in the prison. You can say that outside the prison, you are fine, finally. 
And if you, if you stay aside, you are fine. Sure. But first you have to escape. You have to cross the prison wall. And the prison wall will always be an attack surface for the guards to shoot you down because that's the point. And you have to go there. And we cannot say just circular economy, uh, just like everybody's already. We cannot imagine our, ourselves outside the prison already. We have to cross the very, very censorship-prone wall, which is the, the fiat versus uh, Bitcoin exchange. Then again, when you're out, people can hodl or spend directly. So, uh, both are fine for privacy, but hodling is even better for privacy. So if you have a, a privacy, a censorship problem, a confiscation problem, and you also know that the number is going up, I understand that the, the idea of spending for the sake of spending, I mean, you spend Bitcoin when you have a strong reason, which is basically when you cannot spend fiat. But if you want to escape fiat and Bitcoin is number is going up and moving Bitcoin is making you more subject to censorship and confiscation. So first you spend fiat, it's nature. So when you are out of fiat, then you will start imagining how to spend Bitcoin. And even there, you will probably have a, a lower time preference than most people outside Bitcoin. If you spend all fiat and you go Bitcoin only, probably you will, uh, to put it like uh, Pierre Rochard, will, you will buy way, uh, way, way fewer shares than, than, than fiat people because your time preference will probably will be lower. <laughs> right. And um, I think, well, a lot of what we've been talking about is about the importance of privacy. I think and even calling back to your talk as well, there is an importance of number go up, right? And I, I think amongst some of the privacy circles, right, the Never KYC gang, I think they tend to look down on this idea of number go up. They say, oh, I'll see, you just want number go up. It's like, that's bad because, you know, you don't care about the ethos, the privacy, cypherpunk ethos. But I think it's important to respect and appreciate that a lot of people don't have access to a store of value. And is it wrong to want to store your value? And the other point I think that is probably underappreciated by a lot of the privacy set, the privacy-focused people, is that they say, oh, look, as long as Bitcoin's got a price, any price, well, then you can just use it. But I think the, let's call it number go up, if you will, number go up camp response is, no, actually, the higher the price of Bitcoin, the better it is as a money because more people can use it. And it eventually contributes to that idea of, again, it's a long-term thing, but in my view, it eventually contributes to that idea that it's taking away government's cheap debt funding. Now, it's not happening tomorrow, but I, I see that as a long-term impact of the number go up aspect of it. And so this comes back to, I guess, this sort of fundamental trade-off, but there are people in, in the center, as your talk uh, alluded to, that see value in both camps. Absolutely. That's the whole point of my, of my talk. My talk actually had three circles and, and three overlaps. So if you want, if you want to watch it, uh, Stefan will put it in the description. It's more complicated, but because there is not just pri privacy versus uh, number go up, but it's also the idea of basically disruptive technology and, uh, you know, the Silicon Valley kind of uh, startup thinking, which is another part, which is part of the debate. But I think that the hot debate right now is between, uh, a number go up people with laser eyes and a hodl slogan and uh, the no KYC Bitcoin uh, hardcore cypherpunks inspired people. And I think that we need both. Just like, uh, like I said at the beginning, you need dark and hard money because if the money is not hard, is is not dark. Also the other way around, but also this way. What you you gave? Uh, I mean, I gave a few example of why at the beginning of our conversation, but you just now added a very good other reason. Uh, I, I didn't think about this. I, I should add it in the next time. I, I, well, I never do the same presentation twice, but if I ever do, I will add this point. 
uh, number go up does defund the government because the action of uh, de-anonymize you, following you, spy on you, surveying you and forcing you into compliance, it's an expensive action. Uh, it, the governments don't cannot enforce KYCs, whitelisting, confiscation without money to pay henchmen to enforce that. They have to put you in prison if you don't do something and they need to pay somebody to shoot at you if you don't go to prison. So that's expensive. And uh, if we... Uh, of course, it's not an immediate thing. It's a very long-term secondary effect. But if you do defund the government via number go up, you do defund also uh, the enforcement action against your privacy. Of course, this will be the last things that the government will cut. First, the government will, tack, will cut everything else. And the last thing they will cut will be IRS and Fed uh, wages and, and, and police, and especially financial police taking money from people. That's the most important kind of police they have. But eventually, the less budget the government has, the less enforcement and the less surveillance they can do. Of course, technology makes surveillance cheaper, but, uh, but technology makes also numbers go up possible, which will make uh, surveillance budget smaller and smaller. They, can, they will print in order to attack Bitcoin, but the more they print, the less valuable the, 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 the wages for uh, the, the, the money they give to chainalize this company will become uh, more and more inflated. And that's very good. Yeah, that's right. And I think it is a tough one to speak about because there's all these different nuances and aspects of it. And it also comes down to how likely you believe people will resist, right? Because another argument that I see people making is this idea that, look, look at COVID. How many people just caved into that? Now, I think you could potentially counter that and say, well, look, think about how many people had an incentive, right? Because how many people are either working for the government or get government welfare, uh, or they are part of the colloquially the Zoom class who didn't feel the cost of all these lockdowns and the hysteria that the world has been going through for the last two years. And so I do still believe that long term enough people would have an interest to defend their own value of Bitcoin rather than let it get uh, eroded and destroyed and such, they wouldn't just sort of cave in. But that's that's the question, I think. But that's probably a good spot to finish up. Giacomo, if you had any closing thoughts for the listeners, and of course, I'll put your links in the show notes, but where can people find you as well? Yeah, there is a website, uh, GiacomoZucco.com, that was very, very mistreated up there recently, but now a friend is uh, helping me to put all the videos online. So it's getting better. And uh, if, you, if you don't uh, mind... I will actually leave the, the link to the Las Vegas talk, which is about this uh, Bitcoin subculture thing that we discussed a lot. But also, since we mentioned the problem of lighting and privacy, the, 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 the talk I gave just before that was my Istanbul talk that I think was, it can be useful for this regard. So well, now that I said it, live you you cannot really not put in the description so i'm forcing you basically so. <laughs> of course it's going in there <laughs> thank yeah. you fantastic well thank you again giacomo it was a really fascinating conversation same speak soon i hope you found that discussion an interesting one i think privacy has just been on the mind recently and so there have been some recent episodes such as my episode with lily and this one i've got some upcoming ones also so keep an eye out for those and don't, don't forget to take part in the discussion on twitter afterwards you can find me online at stefan lavera and of course the website for this is stefanlevera.com slash 360 and you'll get the show notes there thanks for listening and i will see you in the citadels